Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, and welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as professionals and allies within the field of sexual abuse. I am your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. I'm an attorney on the sexual abuse litigation team at the law firm of Cohen and Malat. And I'm super excited to talk with our guest today. I'm so happy to have Senator Aaron Freeman with us today. Virtually, we are both responsible individuals. We are abiding by the proper social distancing guidelines. Senator Freeman has represented Indiana Senate District 32 since 2016, a district that includes parts of Marion County, which for those who don't know is Indianapolis. In addition to his service in the Indiana State House, Senator Freeman is an attorney in his own law office, the Freeman Law Office. Senator Freeman was previously a Marion County Deputy Prosecuting Attorney, which is where I first met him when I was a baby attorney many, many years ago. Teaching uh, everything I needed to know, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> he then went on to serve on the Indianapolis City County Council before his service in the State House. So hello, Senator. Thank you for being here. It is great to see you at least virtually, and hello from afar, I guess. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, we're kind of getting used to... I don't know about the new normal. Let's hope we get back to the old normal here soon, but uh, we're all great. Everybody's healthy and good, and uh, hopefully everybody listening is uh, also. So. I totally agree. We're definitely learning to adjust in these unprecedented COVID times. I've been abiding by what I call quarantine rules, which means that personal grooming is not at its finest right now, but you know, when you don't leave the house, it doesn't matter so much. <laughs> well, I know our your listeners can't see, but we're doing this. We've got video up and you've got hair gone. You look good. I mean, the hair's done. <laughs> you got makeup on. It's more than I can say for myself, but it's all good. This is the first time in a while, but that's okay. I appreciate that. So um, again, thank you for being here. You know, and just so the listeners know, the reason I asked Senator Freeman to come on today is because he has been such a staunch advocate for victims of crime for a really long time. And I just want to kind of delve into that and talk at length about some of those things and some of the initiatives within the state house that Senator Freeman is a part of. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about your personal background, just so folks can get to know you a little bit better and about you. So let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Oh, boy. Well, I was born in Hamilton, Ohio. That is uh, just north of Cincinnati, Ohio. So depending on who you ask, uh, I am a Buckeye by birth. Um, (laughs) My parents were divorced. And so in seventh grade, I moved to Brookville, Indiana. So think Southeast uh, Indiana, think Southwest Ohio, virtually right across an imaginary line that is a state. So I was raised in Franklin County, Indiana. And um, you know, I first moved there and moving from a town where you can ride a bike and go virtually anywhere you want when you're, you know, a young person uh, to going to the country was a little bit of an adjustment, so to, you know, to say the least. Basketball was really kind of what, um, you know, and a guy named Brad Stacy, he was the basketball coach down there in a little town called Laurel. And I kind of found my, my groove, so to speak. I love basketball, I love sports. And so 
kind of immersed myself into that. Uh, loved uh, small town Indiana and, you know, really, I think was blessed to uh, be raised in that kind of small town. Everybody knows your business and you know everybody else's business kind of world. Graduated in 1996, thought I was going to go to the Navy. I had a one day naval career that you probably, <laughs> probably don't know this story, but um, no. so I was supposed to leave uh, September of 1996 and I got poison sumac. It's like poison ivy, but it blisters. And, you know, I lived in a log cabin and was trying to get my family ready for the winter because I wouldn't be there. And while we were cutting- Senator, you kind of sound like Abraham Lincoln right now, I have to tell you. Yeah, I didn't cut, <laughs> I was cutting, uh, it was already down. I didn't cut down trees with a, with a I had a chainsaw at the time. So, but, but uh, I will get back to that because it took me to Illinois. So I go up to Indianapolis. We have the teary-eyed goodbye. I thought I was going to the Navy and, um, you know, the doctor comes by me and says, son, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm ready to go to the Navy. And he goes, son, I don't know what is all over you. And I said, I have poison sumac, sir. And he goes, get out of my medical unit. You're, you can't possibly be here. So you can only be in the delayed entry program uh, one calendar year. So that's that. Uh, I was, I was done. I, you know, it's September, so I didn't apply to college anywhere. So I took the year off and got hired by the sheriff down there as a 911 dispatcher, went to ENT school, became an emergency medical technician, and then got hired uh, ultimately as a reserve deputy uh, up in Union County and kind of caught the bug, so to speak. I would ride with state troopers like every waking moment that I didn't, wasn't working and thought I really wanted to be a trooper. Uh, frankly, and uh, every one of them generally would always say, Aaron, you could do us more good by going and being a prosecutor than you could joining the rank and file. So I ended up in Illinois. I went to Bradley in Peoria, Illinois, spent four years there, and then I got to Dayton, Ohio for law school, and that's a fun story too if you want to go down that road, but uh, you know, and then I at Bradley met, you know, a, a lovely woman named Heather Oak, and asked her to marry me and she wasn't moving to small town Indiana and I wasn't moving to Chicago. So Indy was a great compromise. All right. <laughs> That's how you came uh, over here. There's the biography uh, in about four minutes. There you go. Hey, I like it. So clearly your dedication to public service started at a young age. Yeah. And you know, what should be said is um, I don't think we give enough credit to, you know, I mean, you and I now live in Indianapolis and we think of the heroes that are, um, you know, the Indianapolis fire department and, you think of IEMS, you think of IMPD, you know, in small town Indiana, these people are volunteers. I mean, mm -hmm. these folks that are EMTs and firemen and fire firefighters are all volunteers. I mean, they're in their home living life when that, you know, alarm goes off. And so these folks unpaid, doing it truly out of the, the goodness of their heart. And I took a lot from that uh, and hopefully we'll always kind of have that within me of that experience. So it was a great, great time. Learned a lot, certainly uh, lets you grow up a little faster than most uh, most kids going to college, I think. I think that's a really good point. And I, you know, I too am from rural Indiana. I'm from Pine Village, Indiana, which is a town of 200. And I think it's probably why you and I get along so well. We have that country background. And then now we're here trying to do the good work in Indianapolis for everybody. So that's super cool and interesting how your journey into being a lawyer came about. So the next question, why political office? Yeah, so uh, we'll go back. So think of, I was the student body president at Bradley my senior year. And I mentioned that because uh, the one thing I got to do from that is four times a year, I would give a presentation to the Bradley University Board of Trustees. And when you think about being a, you know, I called myself a you know poor farm kid from Southeast Indiana. And you think of 
then you're in front of this group of people that includes, you know, the president of Caterpillar, the president of Hallmark greeting cards, General Shala Kashvili was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a guy named Joe Billy McDade. Uh, Joe McDade is about 6'8". He's an icon in Peoria, Illinois. He's a sharecropper kid from Texas. Bradley recruited him to play basketball, and the last time Bradley went to the national championship game, he was the center on the team, and now he's a federal judge out there. And uh, back in the day was the chief federal district court judge in the central district of Illinois. And so long story short is I gave a presentation to the board of trustees and he keeps me after the meeting and says, son, what are you doing next year? And I said, you know, I really think I love politics for whatever reason. And I think I want to go to the Kennedy school of government in Boston or the Bush school of government in Texas. And he looks at me and he says, son, you can't do that. I go, well, okay. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? And he goes, you got to go to law school. And I go, well, your honor, I appreciate that, but I don't know if I, if I want to be a lawyer. And he goes, nah, here's my card. And I think this meeting happened on a weekend, right? Or Friday. And he goes, Hey, here's my card. Call D. She's my secretary. I'll see you on Monday. And the next thing I know I'm in his chambers and I'm in the federal courthouse and meeting with a federal judge on a Monday. And he convinced me to go to law school. And now knowing what I know, it made a whole lot of sense. Uh, public service, you know, I, I think lawyers oftentimes get a bad rap sometimes by our own doing, but uh, there are a lot <laughs> of us that are truly trying to do the right thing and just truly trying to help people. And I, you know, I know like you, I know your your heart is in the right place for your service as well. And, and we're just trying to make a difference and trying to help people, trying to help our clients. So it's a great one of the great moments that you just look to the heavens and say, thank you, that I was that lucky to have somebody kind of intervene in my life that way. Yeah, I think that the you can never put enough value on mentorship, especially in what we in all fields, really, if you have those people in your life, especially at a young age, who kind of push you in the right direction, you wake up one day, and you're like, Oh, my gosh, thank goodness that I came into contact with them. So I would like to talk a little bit about where you started your legal career, because I believe you started it in the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Is that where you went straight out of law school? I did. And that's a, you know, um, I hope your audience will just appreciate the nature of this, that we're just, you know, being honest and having a free flowing conversation. But yeah, so I'm in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I clerked for Judge McDade my first summer. I, um, through that experience, uh, got to know the U.S. attorney out in Peoria. And so my second summer, I clerked for the U.S. attorney's office. So the first time I got to stand up in federal court and argue a sentencing for a woman who had smuggled drugs into the federal prison in Pekin, and I got to stand up and say, Your Honor, Aaron Freeman for the United States of America, I don't care to tell you that, um, you know, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stick up a little bit. Um, And that's one of those moments you're like, holy God, this is pretty cool. And these people actually trust me to do this. This But uh, no, I caught the bug truly uh, with my law enforcement background and my public service background and knew instantly I wanted to be a prosecutor, knew I had no hope of, you know, um, getting hired as a, you know, assistant United States attorney out of law school. So uh, Heather and I, Heather was already here in Indianapolis. She was doing a clinical rotation at a hospital. And so on a Sunday in May uh, 2004, we're in church uh, on the northwest side of Indianapolis. And uh, as the pastor said, turn and meet somebody around you. I shook the guy's hand in front of me and we kicked off a conversation. And after church, we're walking out and he goes, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm in law school and got to take the bar in July. And he goes, really, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really would like to be a prosecutor. Well, it was Carl Brizzy's college roommate. Well, how about so, talk about uh, fate, if you will, or um, so, God's hand in that being in church. So honestly, I can tell you there are moments in my life that um, 
you know, uh, you look to the heavens and say thank you. I mean, it, it's just one of those things. So on a Sunday walking out of church, I got a business card. I made a call on a Monday and uh, now Judge Lisa Borges um, interviewed <laughs> me on Friday, five days later. And lo and behold, I had a job the next Monday and thank God took the bar in uh, July, passed in, in October. And the day my parents and family and Heather's family came and was sworn in, I don't know, by 1.30, I think I was doing a deposition in a, in a law. So uh, welcome to getting thrown in head first. So That sounds about right. I think a yeah. lot of people don't know that, that it is certainly, it is trial by fire. When you are brand new, they just put you right in there and you sink or swim. I don't even know if I had an office yet. I don't even know if I had like a phone. I just know David Griffith of, yeah, I don't know if you remember Griff, but, uh, you know, Griff was, the supervisor of the misdemeanor unit at the time. And I remember him saying, well, congratulations. God bless you for getting sworn in. Here's a file. Go cover a deposition. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this? Like, what? <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. So um, yeah, it, uh, it kind of was, was going from there. And within the prosecutor's office, you ascended pretty quickly, I think. And you, you know, at some point in time where you, you worked your way up and were prosecuting homicides, right? Yeah, I, I thank God. Uh, loved what I, what I did. I, you know, uh, outside of, like I say, it's the highest calling, I, best job I've ever had being a prosecutor. I would love to still be doing it in some, in some measure. Um, yeah, I was in misdemeanor court for a few months, uh, February, March of 2000, what, I guess five. I went to uh, Judge Stoner. It was a D felony court judge back in the day and um, spent one week in his courtroom and I guess uh, screwed that up so great that, uh, you know, Brizzy calls me upstairs and says, son, you're doing a great job. I want you to go to the uh, grand jury. And of course, as a stupid young person, you say, well, what the hell's the grand jury? <laughs> uh, so I spent three and a half years in the grand jury doing white collar and government corruption type cases. And frankly, we started the, um, you know, a guy, uh, Darren O'Deer, great guy, uh, you know, Darren uh, from IMPD. And mm -hmm, yeah. He, we started uh, doing the to catch a predator cases. So, um, you know, your podcast is, is great. And my love of those cases came from the absolute just abject sickness of, you know, a 45 year old guy showing up to meet a 15 year old girl. And thank God it was Detective O'Deer and his friends, uh, not a 15 year old girl. So I started prosecuting those cases up in the grand jury. Uh, did that for three and a half years. And then, uh, yeah, finished in the homicide unit of the prosecutor's office trying really bad, you know, other kinds of bad guys. So. Yeah, I tell you, uh, someone once asked me, you know, how do you do it? How do you handle those cases? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, they come with the highest highs and they come with the lowest lows because we don't always, you know, things happen and we can't always get it done. But at the end of the day, I think it's those rewarding times that get you through it. Um, because yeah. there is no better feeling, I think, than getting justice for those victims. Okay, so after the prosecutor's office, you moved on, opened your own law office. And was it, was it simultaneous then that you ran for city county council, or how'd that go? No, it's, uh, again, I mean, look, I hate to keep, you know, getting on this drum, but it's uh, divine intervention. I mean, it's uh, May 1, 2009, I resigned, um, uh, started my own shop uh, at that time. And then it was the following calendar year that uh, the city county, I had no, I mean, truly, I had no thought of running for public life at the time. I mean, Heather and I, Heather gave birth, um, you know, April 17th, 2010 to our first child, Jack. So, uh, you know, we're planning a family and, um, you know, in a home. And so uh, I live in Franklin Township and the city councilor down here had an issue, a big one. Um, 
uh, got in some trouble criminally. And the next thing I know, my phone's ringing and says, hey, uh, would you run for the city council? And I'm like, man, I, you know, this is bad timing. I mean, so this is spring of, you know, maybe March uh, 2010. And I'm like, hey, Heather's due in a month. I mean, this is really bad timing. So take my bride to dinner that Friday night and tell her kind of what's going on. And in only the way a wife can look at a husband, she looks at me and says, Aaron, I knew who I married when I married you. Go have fun. So I ran for the city council, won on the first ballot in a caucus, served six years until we were taking a walk on a beach in 2015. Pat Miller, who had served us for 32 years, uh, called and said, Aaron, I'm retiring. And, you know, Heather kind of hears that. And then only the way a wife can look at a husband, she looks at me and says, I knew who I married when I married you. Go have fun. <laughs> so uh, thank God I have a very supportive uh, bride and she's a very understanding bride and uh, lets me serve in public life, which sometimes, by the way, just is not, uh, you know, conducive to spouses and kids and time and uh, some of those things. So um, I'm grateful that they all let me do it. Absolutely. I think it's easy to lose perspective of the time commitments that it really takes and the toll it takes on our families and how they have to be so um, supportive of that or just doesn't work. And that brings us to your commitments within the state house. I want to talk about how you have become such an advocate for victims of crime, and I think that it's something that everybody should know, that consistently since 2016, you have stood up for victims. I have been lucky enough to see it. Uh, when I was at the Prosecuting Attorney's Council in the Domestic Violence Sexual Assault Resource Prosecutor role, I was lucky enough to testify in front of your committees and to see the hard work that you're doing and the advocacy that you put forward. I would like for you to highlight some of that legislation that you've been a part of and which ones you're most proud of. Well, um, it's not uh, very relevant to your uh, the topic of your podcast, but the one that I'm most proud of is um, three years ago, um, a woman had lost her daughter in a tragic homicide, and I know you'll remember this. So on the southeast side of town, the woman was pregnant. Uh, a young woman you know, was visiting a home in a drive-by type situation, senseless, dumb act. Um, you know, she was murdered. And, uh, and then her baby died. Well, Indiana law at the time only recognized feticide and would not allow for a criminal prosecution of the defendant for the loss of the child. And I just, you know, I, I felt that was wrong. I, I think if you kill a woman and um, you can prove that the guy or gal sh knew or should have known that, you know, they were pregnant, I think you killed two people, not one. Uh, she, according to, you know, the mom, she wrote a letter and called 150 legislators and one person called her back and I was proud to do it. And we brought the bill to change that law. And thankfully, in the first year we tried it, it passed. Uh, it's now a law. The governor signed it. And so it's uh, unfortunately been used a couple times already in Indiana. So, uh, you know, if we kill, if you kill a woman in Indiana and she's pregnant, you're going to go for, for double. Uh, and I only, you know, I believe that's the right thing to do. So that's the one that I'm the most proud of, even though it comes, again, it's kind of hard. It comes from such a tragic place that you, at least the way I try to compartmentalize it is you're trying to make the best out of a really tragic, awful situation. So, Absolutely. And moving forward, you know, make it 
and I would, I would love to say that something like that's never going to happen again, but of course that's just not reality. And so doing any of this kind of type of work, when you're advocating on behalf of victims of crime, you're just trying to make it better or more fair for the next person down the road. And I know that because of that legislation and others, you were actually awarded the prosecuting attorney council's 2018 legislative excellence award, which yeah. is amazing. That's great. Um, and especially, I mean, when you think about you know, at least I think of it this way. I mean, there's a lot of folks, and God bless my colleagues. I mean, they've been in the state house a long time. I'm a rookie. <laughs> I mean, you know, I got elected for the first time in 16. Uh, I mean, this is an election year for me. You know, if I got to run for re-election, assuming you know, if I'm lucky enough to win again, uh, I'll uh, you know, I get another four years. But I think I'm I'm really proud of the four years I've had. I'm there. You know, I look. I love my colleagues. I'm, I'm but I'm I'm there to try to make a difference. You know, I'm not there to. I have no idea how long I'm going to be in the state house, but if I'm there four years, eight years, or however long, if, if, if this is all I got, I just wanted to go in and know that I tried and I really hit the ground running, tried to bring some substantive things, uh, tried to make people's lives a little better. And I'm proud of that. And if, you know, if the good people of Indiana send me home after this time, then I'm going to practice law and love my bride and kids and I'll be good. So. Absolutely. And, you know, having seen you in the state house, I know that I have been particularly impressed by the fact that you are always true to what your values are and what you believe is right, even if it's not the popular opinion sometimes. And I think that's completely admirable in what people are looking for in their elected officials. And it's not always what they get. Well, don't, don't say that to some of the, well, I, but I hope, <laughs> I hope that people, what I really dislike in some, you know, and you see it in Washington, I think a lot is, you know, you'll, you'll see a politician tell one group one thing, and then, you know, they go to a different group, and they tell a different group another thing. Like, I don't have to remember what I said. I'm going to tell you what I think, and I, and I hope free people appreciate at least that I'm going to tell you what's right. I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to tell you the truth, whether you love it or not, and I hope people have the appreciation of at least I'm giving them the, you know, the situation as I see it, and if we don't agree, I hope we can be respectful in our disagreement, and I'm not, you know, if when my time is over in the state house, it's over, and I hope the lobbyists understand that I'll at least tell them where I am, and at least they'll know they can leave me alone and go lobby 149 other people, and I'm just not going to be around, you know, I won't sign on for something, but um, hopefully people appreciate that. I, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see later. <laughs> So. <laughs> I think so. And, you know, it's a, it's a very um, good point. I once heard the wonderful TK Morris, who's a longtime prosecutor in Marion County. Now he's up in Boone County during a trial once I heard him say, listen, you know, myself on the other side, we disagree, but that doesn't mean we have to be disagreeable. Yeah. And I just thought that was a really poignant point. It was like, you know, we can all still be, um, you know, humans and fellow Americans and not agree on every point and still move forward in a civil manner. There's a lot of that missing. You could do an entire year-long podcast on, you know, we're all Americans, we're all Hoosiers, and sure, we disagree about things, but there is no reason at all to be disagreeable, to be disrespectful. I would love to be able to get back to, you know, two people to have a disagreement, and then, you know, I'm buying the beer at the end, and we can have a beer and talk about the Pacers or the Colts or whatever, and you know, we can still be friends, even though we don't, you know, we can argue from time to time, but we can be friendly about it. We need to get back to that uh, nationally, statewide. We need to get back to that locally. It needs to be more prevalent all around us. Uh, young lawyers need to, to do that better. And especially now, I mean, the times we're in, I think it kind of, you know, nails home uh, in a big way that what this, you know, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, you're only on this planet for so many rotations around the sun and you better make 
the best of them and enjoy it. It definitely, I couldn't agree more. I just listened to a podcast actually by the Indianapolis Bar Association it's called Off the Record with James Bell. And he, his, uh, the session that he did with Judge Mark Rothenberg, they went, they talked about that point a lot, how when they were both young attorneys, one in the prosecutor's office, one in the public defender agency, they went to court, they advocated zealously on behalf of their particular sides, and then they go have a beer afterwards. And it seems like that's really missing now versus how it used to be. Certainly when I first came around and you were still prosecuting, and I was clerking for Judge Stoner in court six, I saw that all the time. And I completely agree. We're not seeing it anymore. And I really wish that we could get back to that. Yeah, I agree. So I want to talk a little bit about the civil statute of limitations and the movement to reform those as it pertains particularly to sexual abuse. Just to give our listeners a little bit of background, the civil statute of limitations in Indiana isn't very generous as it currently stands. If an adult is a victim of a sex crime, they only have two years after the harm is committed to be able to file suit against a perpetrator or um, a negligent party. And for child victims, I'm not going to get too far in the weeds of the law because I, I know it gets convoluted and people are like, what the heck is she talking about? It's, essentially, it's the age of 25 for child victims. But unfortunately, the average age of disclosure for a child victim is 52 years old. So I would like for you to talk a little bit about the bill that you brought this year that addressed that and kind of talk about what went down with it and uh, your thoughts on it. Well, it's one of those examples of, um, so, you know, to, to kind of go to the end first, I guess. So the bill did not pass. It did not advance. It didn't get signed by the governor. So we got work to do. But it was my first time bringing it. And basically what it does, again, without getting into the real weeds, it, it in essence opens up the statute of limitations for sexual abuse of, of children. So uh, you stated it. I mean, there's different numbers out there in terms of when kids that become adults deal with this, disclose it. But let's just say most of them, uh, the science is clear, do not do so before the age of 25. And our law currently, in essence, makes them do this disclosure in order to bring a case by the age of 25. And I just feel that's, um, you know, I don't think that's where the law needs to be. I clearly think there's some policy there that you know, you know, if you're going to harm a child, I just think, you know, you shouldn't get off just because the kid doesn't come to the place where they can talk about it or disclose to, to someone, you know, until they're, you know, whatever age. Now, I get, you know, the, the converse of that is, you know, as a lawyer, I see, well, there's got to be evidence. Well, my point is, well, in order to convict somebody, you're going to have to have evidence to do it anyway. I, I brought the, the bill that basically lifts the age 25 requirement and said at any time, you know, if you were time barred before July of 2020, we open that and you could bring it. In doing that in full disclosure, Shaughnessy, I mean, I understood that there would be some negotiation. I understood there'd be others that said, well, could we limit it to, you know, age 30 or age 35 or whatever the number was going to be. I, I took the position and maybe wrongly, certainly willing to admit that. I just took the position, well, I'm, let's, keep it open and then have the conversation. And if others want to settle at some age, then we'll negotiate and we'll figure it. But I didn't want to negotiate halfway home and then have to negotiate further from that place. So I just brought the bill. Uh, it didn't move. It wasn't a budget year. People were concerned about uh, the evidentiary parts of it. Certainly assuming uh, reelected in November of 2020, I certainly intend to bring this. It's already on my list of uh, bills that I'm working on already this summer, LSA, the Legislative Services Agency, that does a great job and helps us legislators do this. 
We've already had some conversations about where we go. Frankly, your, you and your firm, uh, the Prosecuting Attorneys Council, I mean, have been fantastic in your support and help bringing in some national leaders on this topic. And uh, don't believe your phone's not going to ring, you know, coming up soon because I'm going to need some more help next January. So. Absolutely. And I, I did want to point that out, too. You mentioned the um, national leaders. Actually, two national leaders came into Indianapolis, um, which was awesome and took the time to come out here and talk to you. Marcy Hamilton and Catherine Robb from Child USA, who are sort of leading that effort nationally to try to reform these laws and have had quite a bit of success Nash, or, yeah, nationally. And unfortunately, obviously, we didn't get it done this year in Indiana. I thought it was great. I thought you guys had a great meeting. They came out and established that relationship with you, which I think could be really determinative in the future of the success of the bill. Yeah, I just wish those ladies could, um, you know, you get them in a room with 149 of my colleagues, and I think it's an easy sell at that point. I, I just don't, I mean, I get there's policy differences, and I get it. But when you're talking about you're harming a child, I, you know, Johnny bar the door, in my opinion, I just, that that's just should be off limits and the one thing we didn't have those ladies testify at the at the hearing we didn't get that scheduled so we had a private meeting and they educated me on some things but uh to get them in public would be great and and next time you know assuming the senate takes it up first getting it through judiciary or wherever it's going to go uh, I, I think the plan should be to get those ladies in because they are just compelling and i think after you listen to them i don't know how in the world you can vote against it I agree. And I'm actually really excited because they're going to be on the podcast as well. So yeah, there'll be a a episode with them. And just like you said, I learned from them things that I didn't know. Of course, most of my um, experiences within the criminal field, and I'm still relatively new to the civil field, but they talked about the importance of these bills, not just to do right by these kids that have had this happen before, but to do right by the kids in the future because it actually does serve as a preventative effort when these bills are passed nationally. Yeah, that's right. Where so I you've kind of already covered this, but where you hope to go from here in terms of the civil statute of limitations reform? I know you're planning on bringing the bill next year, as you just said, which is super exciting to hear. Yeah, it's just a uh, you know it's um, it's a process. Next year will be a budget year. I mean, you never know. I mean, none of us knew leaving session that uh, obviously COVID nineteen would take over the world, and you know, I mean, we're going to be in who knows where we are. I mean, I'm not smart enough in in May of 2020 to tell you where we're going to be in now January of 2021. Yeah, I intend to bring the bill. I continue to work with my colleagues on the Senate side and then, you know, uh, my friends on the House side, hopefully educate them. And we we need to find a strong advocate over there who is really passionate about this and can carry it and kind of work from there. So on all those topics, we're on it. I mean, I would honestly tell you, we did make some, some progress, I mean, in a related topic. So Senator Kreider has been an absolute star in this area too, and he deserves a ton of credit and recognition. He passed uh, Senate Bill 109, you know, signed by the governor. And that, in essence, says that if you've been the victim of a sexual offense and maybe the statute of limitations had run, but if the, uh, if A, DNA is discovered, which, you know, now in our world, sometimes that newly discovered DNA can really make a big difference. Or uh, there's a recording that wasn't found at the time and, and or there's a confession under those three situations, then the statute is revived to bring a criminal offense against those folks. So look, there was some progress made. Senator Kreider again carried that absolutely stellar job getting that through. So I think 
Senate Bill 386 from last year be a great companion piece to go <laughs> hand in hand with what we did this year in 109. So don't worry, my selling point's already made for what I'm doing next year. So. I couldn't agree more. I'm glad that you pointed out Senator Carter's role because when I was first, you know, uh, brainstorming this idea of this podcast and I was trying to think of who the leaders and all of the different disciplines are, you and Senator Kreider both are the two names that I came up with in terms of legislators. Senator Kreider has been just like you, just a leader. I worked closely with him two years ago on um, getting the sexual assault kit tracking system developed and put into place. It just went live within the last month or two. He, just for so listeners know, he actually had a constituent who came to him because she had been raped in college. Her rapist uh, finally confessed. Uh, I can't remember how many years later. I think it was like 20-ish years later. Walked into the police station and said, yeah, I did it. And there wasn't a damn thing they could do because mm -hmm. the statute had run um, so long before. Cause, and those exceptions didn't exist. So, so important that that legislation we've really have, it's so important to point out that the, especially on the criminal side, the legislation has been progressing the last three, four years. And so certainly I'm hoping that we'll keep it going and spread that to the civil side so that these people have some recourse. Because I think what a lot of people also don't understand is the long-term effects of sexual abuse or assault on people who survive it, uh, mental health, intimacy, all kinds of different things that they need help with getting through. And that is expensive. And so that's just another, and that's why I, you know, transitioned from criminal to civil. I never had any thought of doing that until I saw, you know, the work that Cohen and Malad was doing and helping these victims in a whole other capacity, which to me was just wonderful. And I felt like a natural evolution. The other thing I would like you to talk about is what do you think that listeners can do in the coming year to try to help get that passed? Does it reach out to their legislators? What types of things do you think would work? Yeah, I think uh, to the degree, you know, if you're a listener and you're in Indiana and you, um, you know, have a relationship with your legislator, I'd love for you to send them a note and say, hey, um, you know, Senate Bill 386 from you know, last year is a good one and uh, we should consider it. Um, again, I think when you think of what we did, the work we've done in 109, what Senator Kreider is able to do, and then, you know, 386 makes a lot of sense. So yeah, to the degree people are really passionate about this topic, certainly, you know, reaching out to your legislator is always very, very helpful, you know, making sure they know that you're very passionate about this. And then, you know, the biggest thing is to, to the degree that you can spend the day down at the state house, and, you know, when you kind of watch and you know this is going to be calendared, boy, there's a lot of work. Obviously, uh, we walk through a lot of lobbyists who are telling us the way the world is, and, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's great. I mean, the lobbyists provide a very valuable resource, but it's also great when the, when a citizen is, is in the state house, and you, you've got a constituent who says, hey, this has affected me or this has affected my family or just, hey, I'm passionate about this. You know, I mean, I give you the example of the mom. I mean, when her, when her daughter was murdered, I mean, I'll, you know, I was happy to take that up. And it just sometimes brings a face and a cause to an issue that I don't think you can put a price tag on when that happens. That really has some real huge impact at the legislature, in my opinion. So to the degree people are interested and want to help, I would certainly welcome it. You can uh, give them my email address or how to get a hold of me. We're happy to happy to help. So, I think that's great advice. At the risk of making it sound too simple, it sounds like just show up. Whether yeah. that is, you know, writing the letter, making the phone call, or actually coming down there. And I 
can't agree more with uh, how compelling it is for somebody who's actually been there. Like we talked about before, I've testified a whole bunch in front of the legislature and I, you know, I think it was okay. It's, I got, none of us got anything on somebody who's actually been through it and to sit in that room and listen to that person who has been through that and how maybe the law failed them or the law didn't go far enough speaks volumes. It's the most compelling thing that anybody can do. Yep, that's right. So what do you think are the most pressing issues involving child abuse in the state of Indiana? Well, I don't know if I'd have given this answer, you know, maybe a month ago, but now what we're facing is, you know, so, you know, my kids, for example, are home and, you know, every kid, you know, almost in the nation is home. As much as you and I would love to think that every young person in Indiana and around the country are in a great environment with you know, two loving parents or, you know, my bride uh, educating our kids and doing the, the, the very heavy lifting as I'm here running a law office. Look, I mean, I don't know how we get to, a lot of disclosures come from school. Uh, you know, hey, mom, dad, somebody's being mean to me and doing this or that. Uh, a lot of it comes from doctors or uh, playing sports and kind of, you know, not a lot of that's happening right now. I don't know how this is going to play out, to be honest. Uh, we're going to have to watch this and see where the numbers are, uh, where uh, you know reports of abuse and neglect go, and how we can further reach out to kids who may be vulnerable or who may be in that position, and how we can get information to them of how they report that. Because you know, I mean, not everybody's going to know to call a 1-800 number. Not everybody's going to know to get on the website and go to DCS, things like that. So. You know, I, we're in a whole new world here, obviously, and who knows what happens with school over the summer or the fall, you know, things like that. So uh, we just got to make sure that we do everything we can to, uh, you know, while kids are home, do everything to protect those that, that need protecting. So I don't know if I have the silver bullet answer, but I, I think I see the issue. I think we got a lot of work to do on the answer and the solution, if that makes sense. So. It's such an important point. It's so easy for all of us across the country to see the issues that have resulted from COVID and the quarantine and, you know, know that some, the, the prevalent things are easy to see, but it's harder to understand, I think, that those safety nets for a lot of these kids are gone. You know, for a lot of these kids, the reprieve or the, um, the break and the, the safe place for them is school and is those extracurricular activities. And as we all know, as we've been pulled up with our families or loved ones and it, you know, everybody can kind of get on each other's nerves a little bit. I think you take that kind of stress and tension and being pent up together and you put it in a house where those kids aren't safe regularly, domestic violence, sexual abuse, all of it. And it's just compounded. And I think you're right. I think it's going to be I, just like you. I'm not sure what the answer is because we don't know yet. This is so unprecedented anyway. Like it's just, it obviously bleeds through this too. And so going forward, you know, we're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. That's a really difficult one. And you're, it's so right. It's a different answer today than it would have been maybe in January. Yeah, I mean, you'd have asked me that beginning of March, I, you know, different answer. And, and that would not have been a concern. I mean, yeah, kids are going to go to school and they're going to, you know, tell their teacher. We got a lot of work to do in that in that space right now. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think is important for the listeners to know? No, I just want to say, I mean, truly thank you for the, look, I love passionate people, right? I mean, it's so easy to kind of walk through life and, and uh, check boxes or just do what you got to do today. But you uh, have a passion for this. You did back the day you walked in the prosecutor's office and we saw it. You're continuing to do it. So thank you for doing it. 
you know, like I, I try to be passionate. I try to sometimes too, too much. So <laughs> I mean, too, you know, sometimes there's a happy medium there, but um, look, I appreciate your passion for the issue. Appreciate your working with me, trying to help folks in Indiana not be the victims of violence and, and in particular young people. I mean, it just breaks my heart every time you hear of a story about, you know, something happening to a, to a young person we got to be able to better protect our kids. Uh, we need to have a better place in our life and in our hearts of caring for people um, and our kids in particular. I mean, we should try to be nice to everybody, but the kids should really, we should really be nice to them. So thanks for your uh, time. Look, I appreciate you letting me on your podcast and uh, anything I can do to help, as you know, you know how to get a hold of me. So. Well, I appreciate it so much. And it takes one to know one. The people are on the front lines trying to do the work. So I thank you for that. I can't thank you enough for being here today, but obviously I can't thank you enough for the work you do on behalf of survivors of crimes. And I have to point out that it is particularly important to me what you do, because as you know, I am your constituent. Uh, I live in the Senator's District and I am so proud of this work you're doing for us. So again, thank you so much for having been here. Yeah, I appreciate it. If you need anything, let me know. I, all the best to your listeners. And thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.